Well, just like that, the 2023 MLB season is over. The Texas Rangers take home their first World Series championship. And from the perspective of this podcast, Behind the Yellow Line, the Chicago Cubs offseason officially begins. That's the backdrop here tonight. We got Jeremy. We got Randall. Uh, we'll get to the World Series. We'll get some thoughts on the postseason. But kind of feels like go time now for the Cubs. You like shift your attention to 2024. And everything from today forward is let's get this team as competitive as possible for next season. Yeah, I don't want to speak for anyone else on the pod. I know that I was in favor of a quick resolution to the World Series so as to begin the business of the offseason as quickly as possible. That did happen, and here we are. Lots of stuff coming up in the, the very short term. Five days after the, end of the, after the end of the World Series, that's when the offseason officially goes. Uh, teams can talk to any player that's a free agent. They can talk to any team. So, uh, yeah, let's go. That's coming up real soon right uh, right now. So uh, there's only a, only a little bit of time left before uh, it really, really kicks off. Yeah, so five days after the completion until the Cubs can start signing guys, but plenty of moves already happening. Let's start with this, though. Cody Bellinger, I don't think there's any real surprise here. Officially named the National League Comeback Player of the Year. That earns him a $1 million bonus, but uh, – Credit to the Cubs on this one. They were very aggressive in pursuing Cody last year, and really it was a best-case scenario. I think credit to us, honestly. I think we were all pretty high on Bellinger as a buy-low candidate, and clearly we knew something that a bunch of other teams didn't. So I think I think we deserve a little bit of that $1 million bonus, personally. Right there for you, Randall, just to take that million dollars he owes you. Uh, yeah, I mean, what what a, what a season Cody Bellinger had, and that that's even with missing, you know, about a month with that knee injury. Uh, uh, you know, so he he still had a spectacular year. Uh, the bat, you know, came back a little bit. He played great defense. He moved over to first base, but deservedly so. The NL Comeback Player of the Year. I couldn't think of a better person to win it. You know, we talked a little bit on the show about the feasibility of Cody coming back, whether we want him to come back. A couple weeks have passed. The Athletic, among multiple publications, putting out stories. They're ballparking six years between 145, 165 million for Cody. We're thinking mid 20 million a year or so for Cody Bellinger. Uh, now that we've got some numbers to sort of speculate on, uh, Randall, what do you think about Cody coming back? Yeah, boy, if you're a publication that loves just picking contract length and contract values out of thin air, this is uh, your Super Bowl this time of year. That being said, it seems like a very reasonable contract. It's pretty much in line with what Dansby got minus a year, minus 10, 15, 20 million dollars. So it's same, same average annual value, roughly. I'd be good with giving him that. You don't necessarily have a long term uh, solution at first base. I like to think Mervis can be that, but I'm less sure of that than I was at this time last year. And, and again, if none of your center field options pan out, you play him out there. If they do pan out, you have an all-star playing first base. I would pay him that personally. I'm not the Cubs front office, but I'd do it. It's basically, I mean, that speculation right there is basically kind of what the Brandon Nimmo deal was. I, I feel like that's kind of the company you're putting him in. With and honestly, I mean, I would do it too. I, I would, I would definitely do it. I, I think that's going to be low for Cody Bellinger. I think he's going to get upwards of close to two hundred million dollars because you look out on the at that landscape right now. Who who's out there? I mean, you have Otani, obviously, he's in a different league. But then other than that, there's Cody Bellinger is going to hit the market at the perfect time. He's and I think he's going to make a ton of money. So to me, that that seems like a discount to me for Cody Bellinger. So I would take it. Yeah, Bellinger, I don't think could have played this any better than he did. He had his his comeback year 
He's poised to hit free agency again in a very weak free agent market for a Scott Boris client. That has to be like the planets aligning. Uh, so again, good for him for betting on himself like that. And it's it's going to pay off for him. And I, I hope it is. I hope it is the Cubs who pay him, who pay off for him like that. I think there's some concern with Bellinger too. Some of the underlying numbers were a little bit alarming. Obviously he had a number of down years before his time in Chicago. So it's not a slam dunk, I guess is what I'm saying. And I don't think he's the type of player you just open up the checkbook and say, Hey Cody, whatever you want. Now I'm not saying either of you are suggesting that, but I see a lot of people online saying the Cubs need to do whatever it takes to bring back Cody Bellinger. Well, within reason, right? Yeah. And the thing is it's free agent. He can sign wherever he wants. If the Cubs make a very competitive offer to him, which we aren't typically privy to, but if they make a very competitive offer to him and he just chooses to go elsewhere for a lot more money, is the narrative going to be, oh, the Cubs weren't willing to pay him? Because things get very, very silly in the offseason. People get bored. They start making things up. Narratives get written. I, I agree that you you maybe want to have like a, like a ceiling, a cap on what you'd pay someone with Bellinger's positive history and his negative history. But again, this so-called predicted contract from The Athletic, that would be very reasonable for me. And if that's all it takes, and if Cody is interested in coming back here, I would certainly have the Cubs pay that. I imagine he's feeling uh, pretty good right now in a completely different uh, situation and worlds worlds away from where he was last year, going into the offseason, getting non-tendered by the Dodgers, you know, signing on, latching on with the Cubs, who were kind of a perfect fit for him. You know, he had a couple hitting coaches that were there. He he lives out kind of in Arizona, could come over uh, and, and hit during the offseason. So, yeah, and this year I imagine he's going to have a ton of suitors. So I, I just think he's going to get paid. I think no matter what, he's going to get paid. I, I don't think he's going to be a guy that you're going to get on discount. And so there's some skepticism skepticism I have with him as well. I, I wouldn't just, as you said, Ronan, open up the checkbook and just give him Cody Bellinger, whatever he wants. I would, I would have a pretty good uh, baseline, but I do believe he liked being a cub. I think a lot of guys like being a cub. So I always think that if the cubs are in on any player and they make a competitive offer for the most part, especially with guys that have already played in Chicago, like they're going to be in on any player and any player probably would. I mean, if, if they make a competitive offer, I would, see Cody coming back. I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest, suggest that. No, it's definitely not unreasonable. Jeremy, you said Cody's probably feeling pretty good. Uh, I can't imagine Cody ever not feeling pretty good. He's, uh, <laughs> he's a guy who seems like he's always pretty even keeled one way or the other. So up, down, it seems like a guy who's always probably feeling pretty good. Who do you think signs first, him or Otani? And maybe more importantly, when do you think these deals get done? Because it feels like once those two dominoes fall, you kind of get the rest of the offseason going. You think this happens earlier, later? Where are you at on that? I'm thinking earlier. I'm thinking he maybe signs, they both sign right around the time things heated up last year, which, as we remember, was the first real winter meetings in a couple of years, and it acted like a winter meetings. I'm thinking the biggest names probably get done during that and the rest of the dominoes fall. I do think that Otani falls as dominoes go and I don't want Otani to fall he's already hurt but I do think Otani signs before Bellinger because I think Bellinger is going to be kind of a plan 1a I don't want to call him a plan b a plan 1a behind Otani as that second biggest local free agent out there so I think Otani first and then Bellinger is a quick second and everything goes from there I'm gonna say I'm gonna, I'm gonna say I'm gonna agree with Randall that I think it's gonna happen around the uh winter meetings I think that's probably where Cody's probably going to sign. I mean, I think he signed at the Warren Rings last year. He did uh, when the, with the Cubs. Uh, but I think Cody's going to sign first. I, I think hmm. that 
I, I just think I I've, I think they're playing in different markets for the most part. I mean, I think that Otani's just going to be in a market of his own. Yeah, there's going to be some overlap, probably like a team like the Yankees, but I don't think Otani's going to go the Yankees. So like I could see the Yankees really making an offer at, at Cody and and bring him in. And so I think Cody's going to sign first. I don't think it's going to be like they're affected by each other. Yeah, I do think if you are interested in any notable free agent you might have to, or any reasonable trade target uh, whose name might be Juan or Soto, I do think you're going to have to fight the Yankees off because they are coming off a down year. And we know that when the Yankees come off down years, they do their favorite thing, which is back up the truck to whomever they really want to bring in. So like Jeremy said, the Yankees, I think, are going to be in on just about everyone but Otani. And I'm wondering if you see Bellinger go to a certain team, does that mean if they could have been suitors for both, they think that they are out on Otani? They've been given the indicator or they're reading the tea leaves, as it were. So I think the two are very closely linked and it bears watching who goes first and how quickly the next one signs after that. Yeah, I, I just think that Otani, I mean, Otani's such a unicorn that he I just he feel like he's in his own world. Like I I, I feel like it's gonna end up being a team like the Dodgers this time. I mean, you're gonna have to pay so much money to get him anyways, that I think that well, I think for most teams, 90% of the league is if they're if they want to bring in an elite free agent and a bat and there's not many out there, that their focus is gonna be on Bellinger, not on Otani. So I I just think that I think Bellinger's gonna sign first. I, I think yeah. he's gonna get a deal done. And like most of the things we've seen Otani do, his free agency is going to be unlike anything we've ever seen before. You are going to have teams paying for this, like you said, this unicorn, this two-way player who is going to be limited as a one-way player for the entire first year of that contract. And you're just kind of hoping he comes back as just as good of a, a pitcher after his second Tommy John. So it, it's very fitting that Shohei's free agency is going to be just as unique as he is because we've never seen a player like this hit free agency. And then you throw in the wrinkle of him recovering from not just a Tommy John surgery, but a second Tommy John surgery. So it's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. I like to kind of seeing how free agents ultimately play off each other or teams. Like there's going to be a handful of guys that will sign really quickly. They just want to get ahead of the rush. They want to lock in a deal. They're happy what's thrown their way. And then other guys are going to want to see, okay, what did Otani get? What did Bellinger get? Not so much because they're in the same sphere as those guys, but there's teams that are interested in them or they just want to get a sense of how much money are teams spending this offseason before they jump into it. Um, it's unlike other sports or leagues where you get this huge Russian free agency, like the NBA, for example, where baseball, it's drawn out over weeks and weeks. Some guys don't sign till spring training starts. So seeing all of that play out uh, keeps things moving a little bit in the offseason. Yeah, you know, we say all the time, would it be better if MLB's free agency were like the NBA, where you get a, this rush of signings as soon as the market opens? And I've seen people float the idea in seasons past, it's never gotten any traction, but the idea that you would have like a moratorium on free agency or even transaction of any kind for a two month period in the offseason, a month period in the offseason. And I, I don't like that. I don't like that one bit, Jeremy. I, I don't like it either. I, I, I think that I don't th I don't feel like the players would like it. I I, I no, think that no. you would want um they would want to always be in contact trying to get a job. I think most guys, you know, if by not by Christmas or New Year's, they're trying to get a job. They're not. I don't think anybody's like trying to wait out until, you know, spring training to, to not get that job. So I, I don't think they would appreciate a moratorium um, in, in the middle of the offseason. Like you can't sign now. I would think they want to be in constant contact. So uh, but maybe it would create a little bit more urgency for teams to, you know, put out some contract offers. I don't know. 
But yeah, I, I the winter meetings usually are that. I mean, we've seen in the past where there have been some times where the winter meetings, you know, off season was slowed down. But lately, the winter meetings have been pretty pretty good. So and entertaining. So I, I just think that. It, it, I think we're going to see another probably big offseason. The Otani thing is just so crazy to me because he's so unique. Randall, you went over all the issues, and that deal is probably going to be kind of complex. So I just think that's going to take longer than most of the other guys. And that's an excellent point. You're not you're not just going to sign him to a a dollar figure in a year amount with the you know that he gets his own suite on the road. He gets the private jet usage. You're going to have to build in a lot of protection for the team based on how he recovers. So uh, like you said, that's going to make an already unique free agency that much easier. Ronan, you mentioned watching free agents play off of one another, and that can be important because certain players want to be able to go to team say, Hey, this player got paid this much. I'm 85% of this player. You should be paying me 85% of what this player got. So it is all connected. And there are a lot of dominoes and a lot of different rows that have to fall before everything gets settled. You know, another frontline player that has been sort of attached to the Cubs here, Juan Soto of the San Diego Padres. Also some stories about, hey, the Padres probably looking at slashing payroll for next year. I mean, are we buying that the Cubs will be serious bidders in here on Soto? Uh, For the record, one more year of arbitration. He'll probably get about $30 million next year, then free agency. So you're not trading for a guy that's automatically locked in. You're also trading for one of the best players in baseball or the Cubs in on this. I I will say I'm more confident in them being in on this than I was maybe a week ago. Uh, You know, it always, it always makes sense that you need it. You need that big bat in the middle of the lineup and Soto, you you know, he doesn't have a, he, he can't really decide where he goes, trade candidate. So it's not like you have to uh, sell him on your team. You just have to convince the Padres you have the best deal. Now, Bruce Levine, of course, we all love Bruce Levine, claimed apparently on a radio hit last week that the Cubs could potentially get this as a one-for-one swap if they were willing to take on his full salary. And my Mm -hmm. initial result, my initial thought was, well, that's bullshit. But (laughs) with the reports coming out that the Padres are dealing with a little bit of short-term financial troubles, I believe that more now. I don't believe it completely, but I believe it more now than I did a week ago that if the Padres are looking to slash payroll, not just because they want to, but because they have to, you might be able to get Juan Soto for a lesser trade cost if you're willing to take on that full financial cost. So there's so many moving parts there. I'm not putting anything on paper, but it's more believable now than it was a week ago. I think the Cubs will definitely be in on uh, Soto. I, I I think it makes a lot of sense for a lot of different reasons. Uh, I, I I read the article that Bruce wrote. I did not listen to him on the no 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 time to listen to Bruce. But in the article, it did not seem to me like he was saying that there would be a one for one deal for um. Why? So he said that in the article, it was just said that sources said that the Padres really like Christopher Morel, which was not like any. I, I don't know if that was like he actually said that or if people on the Internet just took that to mean like somehow that means one for one. So um, I, I I think it makes sense, though. I think you can get Juan Soto. I don't think he's going to cost a super ton. The Cubs have a pretty good farm system where they can move some pieces. Uh, I, it, it seems clear to me that the Padres are looking to um, slash payroll for whatever reason that they are. I don't know. I mean, I, I think some of the things they're doing right now are to cover themselves because they want to slash payroll. Um, but I, I think it makes sense because you get an elite bat, you could put him in the outfield, you could DH him. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't prefer to put him in the outfield. I would prefer to DH him. Correct. But he, if your Cubs are looking to win the division next year and to do more than win the division, 
you don't pass up an opportunity to get a player like Juan Soto, in my opinion. Definitely. Definitely. And again, we talked just a second ago. How about how you know, some players go to teams? Hey, I'm 85% of this guy. Pay me accordingly. Juan Soto, I think, is kind of 85% of Shohei Otani. I don't think he's quite Otani's skill set athletically, but he gets on base as well as or better than anybody in the league. He can hit for power and playing in Wrigley as his home park instead of Petco will certainly help that a little bit. And if you look at what the trade cost for Mookie Betts was in the final year of his contract, it's not like a system busting cost. You would be able to get him, I think, for a a price in prospects that you could live with. So again, the Cubs front office has some decently intelligent people in it. I'm sure they are already all over this, but if the Cubs, for whatever reason, are not, in on this already, then that is a huge missed opportunity. Is there a scenario here where you get Bellinger and Soto out of this offseason? Or am I am I really getting greedy there? You know, one one is going to require the contract, one is going to require the trade, and obviously you're gonna to have to pay the his his arbitration salary. But the Adage, there's no such thing as a bad one-year contract. Maybe you extend Soto, maybe you don't, but you've got him for the 2024 season. And if by some odd chance you do fall out of the the contention, that's a pretty good trade piece at the deadline, especially on an expiring contract. So I don't think that should be off the table in bringing back Bellinger and acquiring Soto. I think that would be an incredible one-two punch in this offseason, looking to stay where you are and then get better ahead of next season. I think I, I would think that's probably a little bit of fancy land. I just don't see them bringing Juan Soto back and also them bringing or bringing Juan Soto in and then also bringing uh, Bellinger back. I mean, that's a I mean, it's probably gonna be a lot of money tied up in two players where they have other holes besides just the outfield and the lineup. I mean, you're going to want to get some pitching. Maybe you can you can get some cost controlled pitching somehow, but you're going to want to get some pitching and you're gonna probably need a third baseman and some other things. So I don't know. I just I think if you do get Juan Soto, like that's a pretty good bat to put in the middle of your lineup. And I, I, I just. It would be tough. Hey, maybe they're willing to go all in and do all these things and pay the luxury tax a bunch of times and whatever and bring Bellinger. And I, I think I, I don't see that. And I think, to be honest, they might be looking more at Soto than they are Bellinger. And but if you know, they should. They should at least be considering it. We say it all the time in the offseason. You are the Chicago Cubs. You have the resources. Use them. And unlike a team like the Padres who were missing out on a huge chunk of their TV money. You don't really have that issue right now. You, uh, you own your RSN. The issues might filter to you down the line, but you're certainly not in any danger of a, of Bally sports bankruptcy affecting you this year. Go for it. You have, you have no reason not to, if it doesn't work out again, you're shedding Soto's $30 million salary a season from now. So if there were any season, maybe to go all in on two big guys like that. This might be it. Yeah, I would say on paper, the two biggest needs offensively going into this offseason are the corner infield, first base and third base. Maybe you solve that with Bellinger, right? I, I'm, I've got all the confidence in the world Pete Carr Armstrong is going to be fine in center field. Yeah, he didn't hit in the three weeks or so that he was up this year. That's not going to be a problem. But if you've got a guy like Soto who potentially could be added into the mix, you, you may suddenly make that a priority. And I don't think the Cubs' corner outfielders are locks in either position. Say it looked really good the last, what, two, two and a half months of the year. Yep. But, you know, the, the full story there from Saya from start to finish wasn't phenomenal. And same thing with Ian and left. So I think you've got opportunities here to upgrade where, near, where need be. 
And the good news for the Cubs, they got a ton of money to spend this offseason, more money coming off the books, even like Hayward money no longer on the books for the Cubs this season. And they ought to be aggressive because it feels like every other team in the division is taking a step back this offseason, especially the Brewers there at the top. You got to be aggressive this winter. There would be some poetic irony to that. You are done with the contract of a corner outfielder who wore number 22 for the Cubs, and you use that money to bring in another corner outfielder who could potentially wear number 22 for the Cubs. Time is a flat circle. Hey, you know what? If you are able to keep Bellinger and he is able to hit as he did in this 2023 season, you're able to add Soto as your your number two hitter, or maybe even your leadoff hitter. They certainly don't necessarily have a, a better option right now as far as guys who get on base. You could potentially survive with another defensively capable but light hitting third baseman because you are suddenly going to be getting so much more out of either your dh spot or one of your corner outfield positions i'm not advocating that but you could potentially live with that depending on where they add elsewhere yeah i i I just i um you know i i I think that i i agree with you you're gonna want to be aggressive this year i just don't think they're gonna end up spending like 60 million on two players that are both primarily outfielders um, I, I just think they're going to spread all that money around a little more. Um, so I, I think like, yeah, they're going to probably make a big move. I hope I, I assume they're going to make a big move. And then a couple other moves that I assume are going to be pretty solid moves and spend a lot of money. I just don't think they're going to really tie it all up in, in two outfielders. I, I cause yeah. I do think like you look at, you mentioned say, yeah, he did have a hot two and a half months and he struggled a little bit before, but like his overall numbers are pretty solid. And, and those last two and a half months, like the underlying numbers at say, were always solid, strong the whole season. And then they really came alive in the last two, two and a half months. And then Ian, yeah, he didn't quite have the season that he had the year before, but he's still a solid, productive player in left field. And like, I've seen some things about Ian Happ should be learning to play first base if they acquire Soto. I I don't know. Soto is such a worse defender. I don't know. Like I would just DH Soto, keep Ian in the outfield, uh, but whatever. I I just think that, you know, you need that third, you need a third baseman because we don't have a third baseman. You're probably gonna need a, a first baseman. I just don't see like, outfield being 60 million dollars yep. worth and, and and let me say this about ian and say i think both of them can contribute to a competitive team i don't like these guys hitting three and four or two three four five in the middle of a lineup i don't think ian happ at this point in his career is that type of a hitter compliment piece good defensive player got some pop yeah absolutely but when he's hitting three that's not the strongest lineup in the league and i think that that's one of the things that certainly hurt the cubs this season randall um i want to get into something else do you have another thought on that before we yeah i just wanted to say whatever complaints you have about ian happ as a corner outfielder those complaints would not be answered by watching juan soto play corner outfield over a full season relatively speaking that's all i'm going to say yeah Yeah, I just don't want him in the heart of the order next year, ideally for the Cubs next season. Uh, But we'll see. It depends on a lot of things that shake out here this offseason. In anticipation of free agency opening up next week, the Cubs making a number of roster moves to get the 40-man down to 35. Uh, Bellinger declining the mutual option, so he's a free agent now. Brad Boxberger, also a free agent. But in addition to that, the Cubs outright first baseman Jared Young and pitchers Jeremiah Estrada and Nick Birdie. Um, Those three names and all of those guys saw a little bit of action with the Cubs last year. The one that just bummed me out a little bit was Jeremiah Estrada. Not that it's the wrong thing to option him, uh, or outright him rather, more so just the disappointment. I had a lot of high hopes for Jeremiah Estrada and it just didn't quite come together this season. I had equally high hopes for him. I was talking him up on the prospect corner every chance I I got, and it just didn't play out. It's always exciting to see a young reliever who throws hard and has great numbers down at uh, 
Iowa coming out of the bullpen and it just did not pan out here. I'm going to try and stop prognosticating on AAA relievers um, because I have not done a particularly good job of it. Eric Elman, nope. Jeremiah Estrada, nope. So I'm going to try and get myself out of the reliever prognostication business. But yeah, it is a little disappointing. I had a lot higher hopes for him too. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he's back uh, in oh, the yeah. system. Uh, if they signed him a Miley contract, he seems like, I mean, he's been a Cub his whole career in the system. Uh, I think they're just trying to make, you know, some some room on the 40 man during for the offseason because we want to add some guys. Right. Uh, and so he he's one guy I would not be surprised if they sign him back to another Miley deal. They pro- probably informed him about this, bring him back, put him on Iowa. Uh, whereas Jared Young, a guy who also has been the system, but has been I think he's been out of the system a little bit, too, and then back in the system. And Nick Birdie, a guy who, of course, has been all, all around. I, I could see them as less likely to come back. Maybe they maybe they want to explore more as free agents. But uh, Nick Birdie's a local guy, so maybe he wants to be around in Chicago. Who knows? Jared Young, it would not surprise me to see him potentially get an offer overseas, either in NPB or the KBO. That seems like the kind of hitter who could go there and make a very nice name for himself. Uh, Not only, again, are they going to need 40-man spots open for acquisitions, uh, you're going to need to protect some guys from the Rule 5 draft sooner versus later. So the more 40-man spots you can clear with, I don't want to say dead weight because that that does these players a disservice, but players that you can afford to outright, the more spaces that you can make, the better. I was actually pretty excited for Nick Birdie a little bit last year when he came up and he, he was throwing like 100 miles an hour and it, he looked pretty good in his very few uh, opportunities got. And then I think like his appendix broke. The appendix did it, not it like the velocity. Yeah, and then he never pitched again and now he's being outrighted. So it's kind of a disappointing how that played out last year. A couple of other notes just with the Cubs roster here, and then we'll get into some coaching staff and management updates. Uh, some awards finalists for the gold glove, Ian Happ, again, a finalist out in left field. The middle infielders, Nico Horner and Dansby Swanson, also finalists at second base and shortstop. And then some silver slugger finalists for the Cubs as well here. Dansby at short, say in the outfield, Cody Bellinger as an outfielder, utility, first baseman type guy as well. Um, So some nice hardware you think coming to the Cubs this year. Uh, of any of those slots, what do you think the Cubs bring home? I think they should bring home short gold glove at shortstop. I think they should bring home one of Suzuki or Bellinger. He might have a better shot as this so-called utility silver slugger than the outfield because his competition is pretty stiff. I would say those two are pretty safe and the rest should win, but I'm also not necessarily the most objective commentator. I like to think Justin Steele will end up on the podium for Cy Young, but he may have pitched himself out of the top three with a a difficult final month and a half or so. But I'd like to be able to say the Cubs developed a Cy Young finalist. I'd just like to be able to say, I'd like to say they developed a winner, but a, a finalist would be a good first step. Right. I, I mean, hey, you can maybe take a little credit for Arietta. He spent some time in Iowa when they traded for him. Uh, I think Swanson, you know, and, and Nico, I think they have pretty good shots at winning the gold glove. I don't know if they will, but they're, I think they're both going to be right up there. Uh, obviously they're finalists and, and, and Swanson, the silver slugger is a, I think has a legit shot too. Like Dancy was probably, you know, a top two shortstop in the league, in the national league last year. So uh, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. And it's pretty, it's like, it's nice that the Cubs have this kind of solid core in my opinion of like the middle infield where you had Nico and Dansby put up like 10 war combined last year. And then even, you know, we're a little down at like Saya and, and Ian, but like the two of them probably combined for about six war last year. That's like 16 war over four players that you have signed long-term. Um, so they've been like a good core and they just need to really fill in around that core. And yes, they need some offense because most of these guys are not quite the offensive bat, but they they have this solid core, I feel like. 
Yeah, uh, uh, Dansby's competition at Silver Slugger for shortstop. Easy for me to say. Bogerts, Lindor, and Turner. So that's one you you could see it going to any of the four. Yeah, a lot Lindor of them didn't probably. necessarily. Yeah, a lot of them didn't necessarily put together complete seasons. Uh, Trey Turner struggled early. Dansby struggled late. So you know that that's pretty even. I'd say that's a a four way coin toss. That doesn't really work. A dice roll, whatever you want to call it. So I think he's got as good a chance of any of the other four. Well, yeah, shifting over to the Cubs coaching staff here. Uh, Jeremy, a familiar face returning to the Cubs coaching staff in 2024. What's the story there? Yeah, John Maley coming back. Uh, he spent the last year uh, in Iowa as the Iowa hitting coach with the Iowa Cubs. And, and you know, he, he had some rave reviews. I believe Pete Crow Armstrong was a big fan of his last year when he spent some time with him in, in Iowa. And, of course, John Maley, the Cubs hitting coach, when the Cubs went to three straight NLCS, including winning the World Series in 2016 from 2015, 2017, uh, a Chicago native. Um, so it has you know, a Chicago guy. So it's going to be, he's not going to be the hitting coach, right? Cause we already have a hitting coach on staff, but he, in some facility he, or capacity, he will be a uniform member of the Cubs uh, coaching staff next year. He'll be in the dugout. So it'll be interesting to see what he does and what his job title will be. I thought it was pretty cool. I mean, it's so rare that a uh, assistant coach like this ends up coming back to the organization. I mean, this time last year, we were all scratching our heads going, okay, he's back in the organization, but he's going to Iowa. And then he goes down there and he's a total pro all year. And now he gets a promotion back up to Chicago. I think it's cool. You're bringing a guy back from, as you said, Jeremy, the world series core, but just the fact that this guy for three years was the hitting coach, uh, took over for Bill Miller was replaced by Chili Davis. We all know how that ended went about his way, came back to the organization in a lesser role, and he's worked himself back up to the big leagues. I think it's a very cool story that he's back with the big league team. Yeah, Rhoda, you've noted that this is unique. You don't typically see a hitting coach come back to the organization after being let go. Jeremy, you noted they not only still have Dustin Kelly, the hitting coach who seems like doesn't seem like they're going to jettison him, famous last words, but they've made their coaching staff changes already, and he's still here. They not only have Dustin Kelly as the hitting coach, but you also have two other assistant hitting coaches on the coaching staff in Johnny Washington and former Cubs player James Aducci. So it is, it, it is, it will be interesting to see where they slot him in on this coaching staff something i didn't know is that the i guess the rangers have like a so-called offensive coordinator on their coaching staff it's a, hmm. a coach who who specifically game plans their offense what you're going to do against this pitcher this pitcher this pitcher or andy green has been interviewing four managerial jobs you could see melee slot in as bench coach not only do you kind of give him that bump up in the dugout befitting a more veteran coach. And he becomes that guy who David Ross bounces ideas off of, which is not the worst idea in the world, but you have a bench coach who can also work with the hitters. So there could potentially be open roles in that coaching staff, depending how things plan out, but good for him for making it back to the big leagues uh, on a, on the coaching staff, because you would, whatever he's doing on the big league coaching staff, what I've always heard is you'd much rather be a lower end coach in the big leagues than a higher end coach in the minor leagues. Yeah, I, I would think that's definitely true. You know, yeah, yeah. a big league locker room, a big league travel is probably a big lot league nicer. Per diem. Yeah, that's big right. league per diem is probably a lot nicer than just, you know, as especially as you're not even in charge in the minor leagues as a, like a hitting coach or something. Uh, but uh, I, yeah, I think that uh, it's going to be interesting because of how 
major league coaching staffs have evolved so much. I would say probably over the last decade and even more. So it's like, you have all these different, as Randall mentioned, like unique positions that like things you would never even think of like a decade ago. Like what, what are all these positions? I mean, we, the Cubs have three hitting coaches. It seems like, so I, I do think he's probably going to fill into some sort of, you know, kind of specialty role. I don't necessarily think he'll be the bench coach, but it's nice to have that guy on, you know, in the dugout has that hitting knowledge, as you said, has that kind of successful. He's been a, major league hitting coach for a long time. He was, he was with Joe Madden in, in Los Angeles uh, with the angels for the last few years before coming back to Chicago. So I, I, and, and like I said, he had some familiarity with Pete Crow Armstrong and some of these guys coming up from triple a from last year. So I think he's just another guy to have in the dugout that it'll, I, I'm curious what his role is going to be because of the way that major league staffs have evolved, that it's going to be some sort of specialty role. I feel like. Yeah, major league coaching staffs used to be very heavily regimented. You'd have the manager. Below him was the bench coach. You'd have two base coaches, a hitting coach, a pitching coach, and a bullpen coach, and that was it. One guy would double as the outfield coach, one as the infield coach. Now you have specialized catching coaches, game planning coaches, uh, offensive coordinator like Texas apparently has. They have gotten a lot bigger and a lot more specialized, and I don't think it's a coincidence that you've seen – uh, you've seen pitchers become a, a lot more specialized in how they work. The workloads have changed a lot. Hitters have changed the way they uh, attack pitchers and how they get their work. And again, I don't think that's a coincidence when you have uh, all these specialty coaches who are focusing on one very specific area working with the players. Randall, on the administrative side, there were rumors here the last few weeks of the Mets poaching a top Cubs executive, but it appears that's not the case. Nope. Seems like the Mets couldn't poach an egg if they wanted to. Uh, just as uh, I believe it was Joel Sherman said that the Mets were circling or I'm sorry, it was Morosi. I get those two confused all the time, but they're basically the same person that the Mets were circling Dan Kantrovich for a, a high level scouting position. The report now is that Dan will be staying. Either the Mets have moved off him or Dan decided he uh, didn't want to jump over there and try and fix all that, whatever's going on in Queens. And that is good because we talked last edition about how you're already going to have to replace your, your pitching czar, your director of pitching, with Craig Breslow going to Boston and taking the top job. And it would be made doubly difficult to have to replace your VP of scouting too. I am very glad that they will be keeping him in the organization. As it seems, there can always things can always change, um, especially because I think we are, for the most part, pretty happy with a lot of their scouting efforts in the last season or two, especially in the draft, where it seems like you've done pretty good work with a guy like Matt Shaw. So I'm glad he's staying. Yeah, Matt Shaw, Kate Horton, a few guys, Jordan Wicks, you know, being in the majors real soon. Uh, and not to mention, you know, guys farther down the line. But yeah, I, I agree in the sense of one, Dan Cantor seems like a pretty smart guy, I, in my opinion. But listen to him talk, read interviews with him. Uh, you know, they brought him from a couple smart um, uh, teams, in my opinion, where he came over and took over the scouting department and a little bit of player development. And I, it's just extra kind of worry. Like you want your guys to be highly thought of and people to want you, but also, as you said, you'd have to be filling more roles at the start of uh, this off season, which we're talking about. We really want to make a dent this off season. So that's just something else that would have been on the table that like, they would have had it done. You, you would have to conduct interviews. You would have to be looking for people because I don't think they would just promote the next guy up. They would just, they would want to make sure they're getting the right guy in the role. And you don't have to worry about that now. Like that, that would take up time and you know, time is opportunity costs. Right. So I, uh, I think it's just it's it's just positive that yeah if there if he wanted to take the job and you wanted him to get a big role you would be okay that's great but I think secretly you know I'm sure Jed is pretty happy to keep a guy in the in the building he's probably relieved as we are yeah 
Um, a guy who did leave the building, Craig Breslow, taking over. He's the chief baseball operator now cool, with the Boston Red Sox. Cool title there. Did either of you catch his press conference or any nuggets from it? I did not, but I, 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 it, it, I did see some people talking about it, and it sounded like they were very impressed by him, which, as we all know, he is a very impressive guy. He is a very impressive individual. So it did not surprise me, but I did not quite catch any nuggets. But, uh, you know, good for him. He, he lived in Massachusetts while he was working for the Cubs, so I imagine it was an easy task for him to take the – easy for him to take the job in Boston because he didn't have to move. He, he yeah. had a bit there that went viral where he basically said, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, great, another Ivy League nerd coming over to the Red Sox. But he countered it by saying, but I also played the game and I won a World Series championship. I, I thought it was nice. I saw Red Sox fans sort of making fun of him for it. They're like, oh, he must have practiced that 50 times in the mirror before coming out for the press conference. I was impressed. And I think Red Sox fans, if, if any of them right now are doubting who they just got. They're going to be very happy in a couple of years when the Red Sox re- remain being very competitive out there in the American League East. I think he's going to win a lot of games in that organization. Yeah, I, I hopefully, hopefully solely down at the fire station uh, gets on board real quick. I did see one thing that I thought was pretty interesting from some of the reporting on uh, when the Breslow was hired uh, by the Red Sox. You know, they were talking to, to Jed, some of the reporters, and saying, like, oh, what tell us about, you know, Craig Breslow. And, and Jed told this story about when they first hired him. Uh, and he he was he was more like a consultant. He didn't have like a he wasn't the VP of pitching infrastructure right at that time. And they brought him in and to give like a presentation because he scouted the entire Cubs system, you know, and what his recommendations were for moving forward for what they should do with the pitchers. And Theo was still here. You know, he had the top job and they brought Craig Breslow in and he said, Craig Breslow gave this presentation and Jed said it might have been the worst presentation I've ever seen because it was like it was like a Ph.D. like, you know, thesis that he it was way too granular, way too detailed. He said nobody in the room could understand what the hell was going on. It was just so like, and he's and Jed said I talked to him afterwards. Like you have to realize all the people in the room you're talking to, we're not as smart as you. We're not getting <laughs> into that. So like he had to really you know work on being that. And he said the next time he gave a presentation, he said he was blown away by how much improvement that Craig Breslow did in like a matter of weeks, to be honest, and and being able to to you know present in front of you know the group and get his ideas and thoughts uh to you know the masses kind of and not just to like this you know little you know group of people who would understand what he's saying that everybody can understand and synthesize what he's saying so he said it was very impressive to see he never seen anybody improve that much it reminds me of randall in high school those presentations he put together in uh, english class and all that just way over the heads of everybody else you weren't present for any of those Anything else there on uh, front office stuff? Well, one other note that I wanted to touch on here, just the Arizona Fall League, uh, two Cubs named NL Fall Stars. I love that moniker, a fall star for the Arizona Fall League. Uh, two guys we talked a lot about on this show, though, bringing home those awards. Yeah, James Triantos and Kevin Alcantara. And James Triantos is still leading the Fall League in OPS. He's he's batting over 400. He has an over 700 uh, slugging, and he has an over 500 on base percentage. So that's the guy who's just been blowing uh, blowing it up down there in Arizona, just going crazy. And and it's been pretty impressive. And as Brandon mentioned, I think last week, Alcantara has really gone, he's gone off to a better uh, second half in the fall league. And fortunately this time around, and I'm sure this has been the case in the past, but that will be fairly easily accessible for anyone who wants to watch the Fall Stars game, which again, great name. It is this Sunday, 
uh, 8 p.m. Eastern time, 6 p.m. Mountain time, in case we have anybody on this podcast who is in Mountain time, uh, being played at beautiful Sloan Park out there in Mesa. And it is on MLB Network. So if you do have MLBN on your cable grid, that's not probably not a terrible way to spend your Sunday evening because, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you right now, there's not going to be anything else on for you. Watch that MLB Fall Stars game if you can. Jeremy nodding there. I thought he was going to uh, oh, sorry. jump I'm in. Just... I disagree with Randall. You know, I, I... I see. He says smart things, but you could also watch. They're all streaming, too. So you can watch a lot of the games. Yeah, that's right. On the website. Well, well I have a uh, critique there for MLB TV. Shocking that I'm going to complain for a minute about MLB TV. Um, those streams are only live when you're watching on the MLB TV app. So last night, got done with the day, was ready to put on a game. I'm like, oh, I haven't looked at the MLB TV app in a long time. Let me see what's in there. I saw Arizona Fall League games. I clicked on it. Thank you for watching the broadcast with no ability to rewind. And I thought, come on, guys, put this together. I ended up putting uh, maybe 30 minutes towards a documentary on the 1995 Major League Baseball season, which was an interesting year, of course, coming out of the strike and some of the storylines that were in there. Um, a lot of love for, well, first of all, the Cleveland Indians lineup at the time, which of course was really good. But the Colorado Rockies lineup got some attention in that program as well. Um, just hitter after hitter after hitter in those teams in the mid-90s. And uh, I enjoyed it, but I wanted to watch some Arizona Fall League games. So unless you can catch it live, MLB TV not really cooperating with fans that want to watch it on delay. Uh, no, makes no sense to me. No sense at all that uh, here I am, like the perfect audience member to watch an Arizona Fall League game, and they're making it difficult for me to do that. So um, typical MLB advanced media as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think next show we can talk more about qualifying offers for the Cubs, some non-tender deals. That stuff really goes into the middle of November. I want to talk World Series in a minute, but anything else Cubs specific that you guys want to get to here today? I just want to mention that as Randall said on Twitter, because all the fans have been going so crazy, blowing it the roof off the place. The Cubs are replacing the roof at Wrigley Field. Yeah, I saw a headline on that. What's uh, what's the story there? So the, the upper deck roof. Yes, the upper deck roof. And I can certainly tell you what exactly they will be replacing, but good that they uh, have the opportunity to make these particular repairs in the offseason. And... Here's what they will be doing. It'll be a four-month construction of the upper roof at Wrigley Field. As we said, they are fully replacing the upper roof. They are uh, replacing the wood structural beam and the wood slates, and they're replacing them with high-strength steel and installing a new roof membrane. So Wrigley Field getting a little bit of a top facelift in this offseason. Again, you would have loved for that to come after a deep postseason run. But uh, either way, they're not starting it until now. So always good to see Wrigley getting a little bit of work done in the offseason. Uh, presumably, this doesn't impact the upper deck poles, right? They'll still be there. As far as I know, yes, it is just the roof. And they are just swapping out the older wood for newer steel and redoing the membrane up there. And I, I'm assuming, uh, what, oh, I was gonna say, I'm assuming that's starting next week. I believe it is next week, yes, but it is a four-month reconstruction. Because there's a football game tomorrow. and Yeah, course, they, they so probably, although that would be very funny. All the Iowa fans and the Northwestern fans filing in while uh, Wrigley starts, uh, while they start working on the roof. But uh, no, as far as I know, it is starting next week. Jeremy, excellent point. They probably would not be doing that amidst a college football game. Randall, will you be first in line inevitably when chunks of the old roof end up on the internet to be sold? I don't think so. I'm not really sure what I would do with those. Like old seats, 
You can put them in your apartment as at least one member of this podcast has, even if they're not from Wrigley, he definitely has old seats in his apartment. Uh, you know, other, there's all sorts of great things that you could pull out of a ballpark that make for great memorabilia or a conversation piece pieces of the roof. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Like maybe you could find the, the spot on the roof where this foul ball landed comedically and then rolled into the the crowd below but yeah i just can't imagine there's a whole lot up there especially with the birds around wrigley i can only imagine even with rain and wind and snow i can only imagine what some of those pieces of old roof have been through from the seagulls and the pigeons and the various other uh fauna around wrigley so i'm good yeah i mean you, you get dirt you get bricks you get all types of things why not old roof pieces i mean who knows i, I am curious I, I don't even know how old that roof is who knows when it's from yeah. jeremy you are the member of the podcast that's with correct stadium seats uh what venue and what's the story there uh i have from the old soldier field prior to the 2003 2002 i guess renovations of uh cool. of uh soldier field uh yes they're nice they're mounted you could sit in them they're not i mean they're uh, they're not super old. It's not like I have a hundred year old seats from like when Soldier Field was first built in the 1920s because they're a place where they're kind of like you know that that they're uh orange, they're the orange ones because you know, was wondering what color was yeah. color coded all around four different colors. Um, so they're the orange ones, and uh, yeah, so like you know, from the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, those seats. Well, speaking of orange seats, there is one venue in the world. That if those seats are ever for sale, you can put me first in line to buy two of them. Uh, let's see how well you two know me. What venue are these orange seats from? Uh, I'm, I am i don't know. I'm just going to guess the pavilion at Alpine. It's good guess. guess. They are orange. And yes, that's exactly it. Two seats from Alpine Valley. Uh, if and when the time comes that those seats go for sale or God forbid something happens to that place, I need two of them in my apartment, eventually in my house. Uh, that'll be like 60-year-old Ronan someday down the road, sitting in his basement in his Alpine chair, watching some old concerts, having a good time. That is a priority, more so than any baseball stadium, any NBA, NFL stadium. I need two seats from Alpine. Yeah, photo of you, uh, an, an older, I don't want to say elderly, older Ronan sitting in seats, and the caption is, seat you at Alpine. Yeah, yeah, with uh, with Huxley four or so at that point, uh, but that'll be cool to definitely have that. Um, all right, let's shift gears here. World Series wraps up here. Texas wins it. They defeat the Diamondbacks in five games. The first World Series championship in Texas Rangers history. That team's been out of Arlington since 1972. They've been in Major League Baseball since 1961. A lot of cool storylines here. Um, it seemed nationally there wasn't a ton of love for this World Series. But uh, put me first in line to say good for Bruce Bochy. It was very cool to see him win a World Series championship, not with the Giants, and to do it with the Rangers for their first title. Yeah, pretty cool for me. It's nice to see a new fan base get to celebrate. Yeah, I got I got no issues with this. It's, it's an inoffensive conclusion, and given what uh, that playoff field looked like where there were a lot of options that would have been very difficult to stomach, including the team facing them in the world series. Um, I'm, I'm fine with the Rangers doing it. Rangers fans get to enjoy it. Their parade was today as we record this on the evening of Friday, November 3rd, Fergie Jenkins was there. Fergie Jenkins doesn't go anywhere. That isn't a great scene. So we know it was a good parade. Uh, so good for them. It was maybe not the most exciting world series, but a team that I hate did not win it. So I'll call it okay in my book. 
Yeah, it seems like it had potential after that game one. It was such a great game one, and then it kind of went downhill where Texas kind of uh, took over a little bit. And, uh, yeah, as Randall said, inoffensive team to win. I, I, I was rooting for the Rangers. I, I, I have always enjoyed the Rangers. It's nice for the Rangers fans to uh, kind of wash away the, uh, the, the pain, I'll say, of the 2010 and especially the 2011 World Series where they had the uh, great chance to to walk home with the championship. The only disappointment – I'll I'll say from this World Series, it's it's just hard to get into the Rangers when they're playing in that like whatever stadium that they're playing in. The old ballpark was so much better uh, in terms of just you know the look of it and the uh, the aesthetic of it. I know it was super hot there. I was there. It was super hot, hard to play there. But uh, it just whatever the what they're playing in now, it's just I, I'm not a fan of it. It's, you know, it's a, it's a it's a Home Depot. It's a big corrugated metal roof warehouse. Yeah, not a matchup of high character ballparks it is it was very funny to me though that the rangers won their final three games on the road first of all this is an incredible factoid that's been filtered through social media from a couple of different people who have figured it out the texas rangers defeated the rays that's an r the orioles that's an o the astros that's an a and the diamondbacks that's a d they literally defeated road after going oh. 11 and 0 on the road in these playoffs which is how the hell how the hell does it line up like that um but very funny that after the game 4 where they they went up huge ended up blowing out the diamondbacks and then they ended up winning game 5 5 to nothing and it, it got away late they kept they booth kept calling them the answerbacks this team that kept coming up with an answer for their deficits and and coming ahead to take the lead there was no answer back and they kept showing all these great crowd shots of the few diamondbacks fans who were able to get themselves into the ballpark and there was no answer back to be found. And if you can't really get into the, if you can't really get into the outcome of the world series, you can at least be uh, a, a bit of a, a bit of a, okay, I'll say it a bit of a jerk like me. And you can at least enjoy some quality, sad crowd shots in the world series. But as you said, Ryan, uh, I didn't, yeah, you enjoyed, well, I will, I will say though, it was a little disappointing that the Diamondbacks put out all that security uh, to, to not did let not, the, did not Rangers the Rangers go in the in pool. The pool. Uh, yeah, it's a little ridiculous. Come on, if you're gonna, if Diamondbacks, that's what they get for having the pool. If they're gonna lose, people are gonna jump in it. But you know, as you mentioned, Bruce Bochy, what what a career that guy's had. A clear Hall of Famer coming back from retirement and 68 years old coming back, winning another World Series. Obviously, a great manager. Uh, so just just a very impressive run that the Texas Rangers had. And there's a photo of Bochi giving his game hat to the, the Hall of Fame representative so it could be enshrined. You're going to need a big display case because that man ve- wears a very large hat. And yeah, Jeremy, I just can't help but think if you don't want people jumping in the pool in your ballpark, don't put the pool in the ballpark. It just seems very, very silly, as I find Chase Field in general. But that's, a, I guess, a fun footnote to the conclusion of the World Series. No swimming allowed. No lifeguard on duty. Jeremy, one of the things you said you were looking forward to from the theatrics around the World Series was the first pitch from former President George W. Bush. You mentioned back in 2001, the first pitch that he had at Yankee Stadium. Um, Not quite the same velocity here 20-some years later. (laughs) No, no. no. And of course, he actually, he threw out the first pitch a a few times. You know, he threw it out a decade ago when the Rangers uh, were in the World Series. But yeah, definitely not quite the same. 
Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I enjoyed seeing him go out there and throw the pitch. And I always enjoy when the president goes out there and throws the pitch. It's something we need to see happen more often. I mean, our last two presidents have not thrown out a first pitch, and I'm disappointed yeah. both of them. That's why you get the job, to be honest, is throw out the first pitch. Yeah. Uh, every president should be throwing out the first pitch. And so I need to see some more first pitches from presidents. Yeah. Um, I'd worry about either of them getting to the pitcher's mound if the state both of them are in uh, right now. But um, I, I agree. One thing that stood out to me about George Bush is, God, he looks like his dad. I haven't seen a lot of George Bush in the last five or ten years. He's aged a lot, and he's just like a spitting image of his father is what I thought seeing him out there. Um, but that's how it goes, right? Uh, anyway, Texas Rangers get their World Series. Uh, one of the big national storylines here, which I find a bit ironic given that a lot of national media chose not to talk about the Major League Baseball postseason in the World Series, has been low ratings, low viewership in the World Series. Um, why should I care? about low viewership across the country here in the World Series? You know, I I don't know that you should. It's not necessarily great for the game, but you were putting in there two markets that don't really have big national appeal. You know, there's not a whole lot of a national fan base for the D-backs or the Rangers. Um, You didn't really have any, I guess, any real household names in this World Series, but MLB does such a poor job of marketing their household names that that's not really an indictment of either team. You know, you're going to have you're going to have World Series where you don't really have national fan base or even a big regional fan base. I think we knew this is probably going to be the case. It does not affect us in any way that we're not making money off these ratings. Um I I will say that the, you know, the five or so same commercials they were running every commercial break. I don't know if those advertisers got their money worth, but that is also not my problem because quite frankly some of those advertisers should be in jail after subjecting us to some of those commercials. Randall, <laughs> Randall you love ads. <laughs> yeah, really. I, you know, I, I think I think a lot of this gets blown out of proportion. I think it's a uh, low hanging fruit when it comes to, oh, yeah. uh, you know, a talking point that then you can go oh, baseball's dying. Well, no, that's not how it works at all. I, I think um, a, a couple of things I think worked against the World Series this year. But one of the more interesting things I was reading about recently was the days that they chose these games to be played. Most of the time in recent years, the World Series starts midweek week a tuesday or a wednesday this year the world series started on a weekend friday saturday and it started a halloween party weekend that friday saturday leading up to halloween is a day where a lot of people are not home they're at parties they're out okay that's going to have an impact on ratings um so versus you know a tuesday night where there's no real competition on tv people are midweek in their work week and they're probably at home more likely to put on the television and put a game on so a number of factors are going to go into it um Two different teams in the World Series. If it's Cubs-Yankees, you maybe have record viewership, at least over the last 20 years. So it could easily bounce back next year. I don't think this is indicative of the health of baseball. I think a far better measurement of the health of baseball is local ratings. And in both of those local markets, Phoenix and Dallas-Fort Worth, 40 to 50% of TV sets in those networks for watching these games. That makes a ton of sense to me. And I think that speaks a lot more about the health of the sport. So don't... uh, Bite the low-hanging fruit, I guess is what I'm trying to say here. Baseball's fine. Things can be improved, but it's not a huge deal that only 10 or 11 million people on average were watching the World Series this year. Yeah, you you make an excellent point, low-hanging fruit. It is the perfect data set that you can instantly and easily distill into a, a year-to-year bar graph, put out on social media, and get people talking about it, but without any indicator as to what it means or why it is especially relevant. So it is the perfect low-hanging talking point, again, in a year where it was too 
you know, kind of lower end team or lower end fan bases in the World Series. So I agree completely. It's low hanging fruit. It's worth mentioning, but it, it really doesn't mean anything beyond that. It's empty calories as a talking point goes. Right. Yeah, I don't think it means anything. I I, I think ratings in general, I, I never understood why people obsess over them. Like, who, first of all, who cares? Like, why do I care what, what it is? I think the game's pretty healthy, as we've, we've seen. Um, secondly, you know, TV ratings, they, they go down all the time. Like, yeah, they've gone down over the last decades. You're never going to get, you know, well, obviously, you're never going to get what it was in the 70s or 80s. You're definitely never going to get what it was in the 90s and 2000s. I mean, there's so many more options nowadays. Like yeah. NBA ratings have gone down and NFL, uh, NFL ratings have gone down. You, you know, it's not like there was I was talking to my dad. I'm like, you know, when you were a kid watching the World Series in 1970, uh, you know, there was he, he lived in the, you know, in the Quad Cities. He had two TV stations. Like there's way more options. I mean, just on TV alone, how many TV stations are not to mention all the, the streaming content and the internet and all this stuff. So like, it's just not even, you can't compare in in that sense. And so, as you said, the local ratings are strong. They're strong all season long. So I don't think it means much. And Jeremy, that point you just made, I think is really important. Traditional Nielsen ratings do not factor in streaming, right? I watched the World Series streaming. It was on my television set, but I was streaming it over the internet. It's an antiquated way, I think, to look at this. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad we're in agreement with this because, uh, you know, other people have brought this up. Oh, people aren't watching baseball like they used to. Well, maybe that is true because there's, to your point, Jeremy, a lot more options. But the way that we monitor how people watch games has not caught up to the way that people actually watch games. Jeremy quad cities, two TV stations. That's a, that's a ratio of uh, two cities, two cities to one station. If you simplify it down. Yeah. It's, it's not good there if you're trying to entertain yourself, but yeah, it's just, to me, it's like, first of all, as a fan, I, I, I generally don't really care like what everybody else is doing because it's my interest and what I like. So I don't really need like if 20 million people watch it versus 50 million versus 10 million, that doesn't affect the way I enjoy it really. So I, I, to me, it's from there, it's nonsense. And, and as we've seen, like the game attendance was way up, you know, local ratings are way up. It, mm-hmm. I don't think it means much for the sense of, I mean, maybe it has some factors with how they do the playoffs in the future, but I don't really think it means much. And as you said, you know, you get a couple of major teams in there. Not, not that I think Dallas, you know, it's the fifth largest media market. So it's still pretty big, but you get, you know, the Cubs, the Red Sox, the Dodgers, you get some teams like that. People are going to tune in for those. Oh yeah. And it would have been different too, if the Phillies had got in Um, even Atlanta, if they had jumped in here, given the year that they had, um, it's just the way that it played out. Um, I will say uh, a criticism though, that I have generally of the postseason. One thing I wish could get resolved down the road, just from a broadcast perspective, I hate how every series is on a different network, right? You've got um, ESPN involved for the beginning of it. You've got uh, Turner sports, you've got Fox sports, you've got max broadcasting games. It's like every night you go to put on the game, you got to find a different platform to get caught up to speed. I don't think that that helps some of those additional folks that just want to have the ease of putting the game on and being on TV, but I don't know, maybe another decade or so, and that'll work itself out. You got to keep adding enough teams to the postseason. You're going to end up on true TV like you do during the NCAA tournament, the annual, the annual search through your channel guide, figure out what channel true TV is. Just felt like every night I was putting a different channel on. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's generally what it, I mean, it, it usually, it, I th- I feel like they're you know following the uh, the same the same as pr- I think the NHL, the NBA do the, the similarly where each league is in the, on a different channel. But uh, yeah, I mean I, maybe they can come up with a way 
to synthesize that a little bit where you can watch yeah. them all kind of like I know on my computer, if you have or on the MLB.tv, if you it doesn't help you, Ronan, but if you have a cable account, you can log into your cable account through the MLB.tv and you can watch all of the games on the MLB.tv, but that doesn't help you. No. And I know, Ronan, you have some ideas on what they can do to make that first round more easily watchable, both for the out-of-market fans and the fans who are actually in these home markets, because I know you have very strong feelings about what they can do to fix that. I just take midweek day games in the playoffs because I am employed. I have a job, and I'm busy during the day. Uh, prior to working, I was in school, and I was in college, and the thought of being a Rays fan, you have a 99-win team, and your games are being played at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon in the middle of the week, that's awful to me. And the only reason that happens is because Major League Baseball gets more money to stagger the games over the course of the day instead of playing those games simultaneously. I wonder, though, I would think a lot of baseball fans would love the option of split screen, both games on the screen at one time. You can throw an ad up there as well to boost revenue. I would love to see things go that way. I mean, the fact that final four games, the championship series games are occurring at like two o'clock locally midweek in the afternoon. That's insane. That's bad for baseball. And you shouldn't have to wait to the world series if you're employed or being educated to be able to watch your team play a game. And I think that that's bad for baseball. Now I live in Denver. We're a couple hours behind the East coast. You've got to balance. Okay. If the game starts at eight o'clock on the East coast, that's six o'clock for me. And okay. It ends at a reasonable time for me, but it's super late for kids out on the East coast. Yeah. There's a lot of things that go into that, but I don't know how anybody can justify a two o'clock local game for a postseason team being good for anybody except the retired. Right. And unfortunately that doesn't factor into me for another 30 years or so. Yeah, you gotta get that, that retirement early. That's the that's the key. Uh, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I imagine for you know the TV networks feel that obviously they probably get more eyeballs doing it this way because they probably can sell more ads. Um, you know, as opposed to putting them uh, against each other, which will compete against each other. Uh, for me, I do like the nostalgia of it. Like, you know, growing up, always having, I always enjoy, you know, games during the day or whatever. So like, it gives me a nostalgic aspect, just like the NCAA tournament, just like, you know, whenever the one time I get into soccer is like the world cup or other things where like, you know, it's like an all day thing. And I, I feel like that first kind of four, uh, that first uh, week of the playoffs, which I don't really enjoy in terms of the idea of it, but just, you know, having that, like those first couple of days, it gives me you like an NCAA tournament kind of feel to the major league baseball playoffs. So I do enjoy that. I, I enjoy that. So, uh, but yeah, it, it's obviously tough for, you know, people that have to work, which is 90% of people. Yeah. Ronan, you can be your retired self sitting in your salvaged Alpine seats. Sure. Watching, watching this as they figure it out. Jeremy, that's a good point. I do kind of like that, that feeling of the first day of the playoffs where you do get baseball from basically noon until nine or 10 at night. That is, that is kind of fun just to have all these different series going at once, but I agree. It is kind of poorly staggered. It doesn't really help teams in and fans in certain markets. The Cubs clinched the NLDS in 2015. That was a mid afternoon game because they, yeah, they started that, you know, in, in broad daylight. So there, there's always, one maybe even two fan bases you were going to get screwed out of watching their team in the postseason yeah and i got screwed out of that game uh because i had jury duty that day and i had to sit there and they actually let us out and i had a friend ask me to go to the game with him and they actually let us out an hour before the game and i called my buddy and i'm like can i get there he's like not already here mm. um but i had i had i didn't know when they're gonna let us out so i had jury duty so that's a day game i got screwed out of 
I think it's a stretch too, though, to comp it to the uh, uh, NCAA tournament. That's a whole different rush. And I love baseball. That's a whole different rush watching those first couple of games of the NCAA tournament than, um, you know, the, the uh, Rays and then the Orioles <laughs> and some uh, baseball games. It's an like all-day baseball event. Yeah, but those those basketball games too are also immediately you lose and you're out. It's not quite the same thing as game one of a best of three wild card set. Uh, but remember a couple weeks ago, I said, I, I wouldn't be opposed to some of those wild card rounds, giving one of those teams an advantage, particularly the division winners, giving them a one Oh series lead in those wild card games and sort of having those elimination games from the outset. Um, all in all though, maybe not the most memorable postseason of the last 10 or 20 years, but we get a new world champion. And at least from this Cubs fan perspective, we get the off season beginning in earnest this week. We, we all know which postseason was the most memorable of the last 10 years, and we were celebrating it seven years and seven. a day, seven years and a day ago tonight. But uh, that needs no introduction. Can you believe it's been seven years? I cannot. I cannot believe it's been seven years. Not a bit. Long time. About time we get another one. You know, I it was funny. I was on MLB TV, like I said, trying to watch an Arizona Fall League game. I settled on the 95 documentary. Um, along the way, I saw a 97-minute 2016 World Series film. I've yet to see that. I've, I've really not watched any of that content. I watched the World Series. I saw them win it. I've seen bits and pieces of games since then. I'm getting to that point, though, here pretty soon where I think I'm going to finally fire that up and relive it. Uh, I, Randall, have you seen it? Do you know what I'm talking about? If it's the one that they released commercially, not only have I seen it, I was at the local premiere of it. Thank you very oh. much. Ooh. And, uh, you know, in the it, it's one of those things that they produce very clearly during the World Series so that whichever team wins, they have it ready to go as soon as, you know, as soon as it's fit to be print. One thing that it lives rent free in my head is that Dexter Fowler at the end, when they're, they're just kind of interviewing the players talking heads over the credits. He says he's always, he was worried that the ball was that Chris Bryant threw was going to sail over Anthony Rizzo's head and just do terrible things. And now every time I watch that replay, I'm a little bit worried that he's going to be right. Doesn't matter how many times I see it. I'm worried. This is the time he's going to be right. And KB is going to airmail it over Rizzo's head. I'm glad it hasn't happened yet. I, you know, I'll own the fact that I still get nightmares or flashbacks of Jason Kipnis pulling a ball down the right field line. And I was convinced off the bat that ball was gone, which would have been a disaster. Of course, he pulled it foul. Um, also, though, speaking of Jason Kipnis, I'll Here's never from forget. Northbrook? Uh, well, yes, but Fox, after game four, interviewing Kipnis and basically saying, how cool is it going to be for you to celebrate a World Series championship here tomorrow? And I jumped on that as a fan going, absolutely not. Uh, try it. And we all know how that ended up. Uh, but those two things with Kipnis will always be with me as a uh, Cubs fan looking back on 16. I was present for that moment as well. I believe his exact word he was asked are you imagining what it might be like to win a World Series here at Wrigley? He says, I'm starting to think about it. And you said, yeah, good luck with that, pal. Yeah, Kipnis, you know, the 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 pride of uh, Northbrook, Illinois, uh, along with, you know, John Shire and some other people. But uh, uh, I have not consumed that much content either, Ronan. I've only I've watched the end of uh, the game seven a few times. I, I've I've seen it, you know, on marquee and and when in 2020 when they're replaying games, I saw it, but I I didn't really uh, consume any of that. I didn't really consume any of the Blackhawks content when they won all the championships, watching all the videos. So I, I still feel like 
it needs to be a little bit, as you said, you know, I don't know if seven years is enough. Like I need like a little bit more of a delay to really appreciate it, to have like that moment, you know, come back to me and feel the nostalgia of it, feel it. Like I don't want to watch it when it's like, you know, just, it's still, I mean, Kyle Hendricks is still a cub. We still got 20, uh, 16 cubs on there on here. So, uh, I don't know if I'm quite ready yet to watch yeah. it. Yeah. I wanted a little more distance. It was just last night was the first time I think since the world series that I actually stopped, I stopped on the film for a minute and I said, am I ready for this? No, I need a little bit more time. And, um, ended up looking at that 1995 documentary. Uh, not much talk about the Cubs in that 1995 documentary, sort of bad times for the Cubs there in the mid nineties. No Sosa, no, uh, some homers there. Uh, he, he had that big 96. I remember, uh, not quite 95, I guess. No. Um, the thing that I, I was thinking about too, was 1994. They started it talking about the 94 season. You had a couple of guys with 40 some home runs when the season came to a close in mid August, uh, Tony Gwynn was hitting like 392. You had all of these storylines of guys that were close to these milestones. And then of course it comes to a close. The world series gets wiped off. Uh, I, I mean, I am glad that I, I really don't have too much of a memory of that world series getting canceled. Like I, I remember my brothers and things being pissed, but it really didn't absorb with me. I was seven at the time. It just didn't quite click. Um, but I definitely remember the excitement of things coming back then in 95. And when I think of my cub fandom in earnest, that 95 season and into 96 is when things really started to come together for me. So probably a good thing. I don't have much memory in 94 because that would have pissed me off. <laughs> what sticks what sticks with me is Expos fans and White Sox fans. Oh, sure. Two two teams that were poised probably to make the postseason and potentially go deep in that postseason. The 1994 Montreal Expos and the 1994 Chicago White Sox. Two fan bases that, if you ask them, they are both insistent that they would have made and won the World Series that year. So that's the World Series it never was. Expos, White Sox. Yeah, I, I'm actually. I think the Yankees had the best record in the AL when uh, it was shut down, but and that was a big one for the Yankees fans because they hadn't done anything since the early '80s, and of course they came back in '96 and ended up winning uh, the World Series. Uh, actually, they hadn't won a World Series since 1977. They made made the World Series in '81, I believe. Um, but yeah, I, one thing that always gets me is you look back at that '94 season. Uh, look at Matt Williams because he had mm-hmm. an absolutely crazy year that year, and it got canceled. And he could have been the guy to have broken Roger Maris's home run record before McGuire. And you just look at his numbers. You're like, wow, Matt Williams was really going off in uh, that 1994 season. But yeah, I remember it, uh, it happening. I remember the whole fight. I didn't really, as you said, appreciate it. Cause I didn't really yeah. quite understand what was going on because there was, but I do remember it happening. I do remember like the sports illustrated kind of covers and stuff uh, of the players fighting over it. And, you know, I don't remember the whole ins and outs of what the specific, things were going on at the time, but I remember the strike happening, baseball being canceled, being pretty sad about that. And I, I will say the 95 world series, I always say this, like the 93 world series is kind of the first world series that I, I have an idea of like being played, like seeing it on TV, like not really a memory of but the 95 world series is the first world series. I like, I really have a memory of like following Braves versus Indians. That's one I can, I like pinpoint, remember watching and saying like, that was like the big first one for me. Yeah. And, you know, one other thing from a local standpoint for me here being in Denver, uh, 1995 was the year Coors Field opened. They had played baseball for two seasons prior to that at Mile High Stadium. But when you walk through the main concourse at Coors Field, there's a sign, you know, opening day was something like April 26 or April 29. And I remember seeing that going, wow, that that's late, you know, awfully late for the ballpark to open. Uh, and then I was like, oh, yeah, 
the season started late. They also had a super quick spring training that year. It was something like 14 days to get them ready for the start of the year. Uh, and then that first game at Coors Field, a 14-inning affair and a walk-off home run for the Rockies to christen the new ballpark. So uh, we're seeing at least the part of it I caught there on MLB TV, one of those uh, 1995 a season in review. And on top of all of that, you had Cal Ripken yeah. going for the all-time games played, uh, consecutive games played streak. So uh, wild stuff there in the mid-90s and now a full offseason for us here to prepare for whatever 2024 is going to bring. Um, one other thing I want to mention here, some notable retirements across Major League Baseball. Today, the Detroit Tigers officially decline a team offer to Miguel Cabrera. He is officially retired. We also see Nelson Cruz hanging it up. Adam Wainwright hanging it up. And I think I saw uh, what he put as the reason for his retirement is he just got a puppy. So uh, Randall rolling his eyes right out of his head with that one. But Adam Wainwright, you're not going to see him at Wrigley Field anymore moving forward, Randall. I'm sure that makes you happy. Uh, he can follow uh, his former battery mate, Yadier Molina, into hell. I mean retirement. Uh, Miguel Cabrera certainly wronged me in 2003, but he's mostly stayed out of my way since then. So congratulations to him. Nelson Cruz, I have no beef with Nelson Cruz. Nelly Boomstick, a great career for him. Adam Wainwright, the, the less said, the better. I'm not going to miss him. Randall, oh. I, uh, I saw some Cardinals fans really quickly, Jeremy, saying online, how great will it be when the Cardinals coaching staff has Yadier Molina and Adam Wainwright on it? That kind of feels inevitable at this point. Yeah, of course it feels inevitable. The Cardinals love nothing more than filleting themselves in that fashion. It's absolutely going to, at some point in the very near future, be manager Yadier Molina and his entire coaching staff is just going to be his former teammates, maybe even one or two of his brothers, uh, just the, the whole flying Molina brothers clan in there in the Cardinals dugout. I, I would absolutely call that inevitable. It is going to happen because if there's one thing Cardinals fans want, it's more Yadier Molina and everyone else is guilty of being not Yadier Molina with a capital N on not. It's very binary. You're either not Yadier Molina or you're not Yadier Molina and they want more Yadier Molina. Yeah, going on there. I I think in the meantime, at least before that, I, I think there's a good chance that Adam Wainwright is going to be announcing baseball games because I, I think he does a pretty good job when I, I hear him on Fox. And so I wouldn't be not be surprised if he is back at Wrigley Field pretty soon uh, announcing some baseball games. And, you know, I, I think I'm a, I'm also a little disappointed, though, in uh, Nelson Cruz retiring because I, I was hoping we get to 500 home runs because you you look at his numbers for a guy like after the age of 30 and 35, they're insane. They're like best all time. It's like him and Barry Bonds. So <laughs> I was hoping Nelson Cruz could be this guy who pretty much hit all his home runs after 30, but still got to 500. But he's not going to quite get there. Yeah, but good for him for hanging it up on his terms and not, you know, hanging around hitting 180 with the team, just hoping to keep running into him and get to 500. Jeremy, you said Wainwright might end up broadcasting. I cannot wait for that first Fox booth that is whatever play-by-play -play guy they put in there, uh, flanked by A.J. Pierzynski on one side and Adam Wainwright on the other. I know they might have done a, a short spell of that this postseason. I cannot wait until that is their top booth on Fox and I can just check out of the national broadcasts completely. You're already checked out, Randall. Yeah, I correct. I mean, more completely. More completely. Yeah. Anything else, Jeremy? You looked like you had one more thing to say. No, I, I, I think we're good. I mean, it's probably going to be Randall's guy, Adam Amin. He's always been the guy doing uh, broadcasts with A.J. Brzezinski and, and Wayne Wright the last two postseasons. But, you know, just, just excited for this offseason. I think Monday, yeah. right, that's the day. That's five days after uh, the World Series. And that's the day teams can talk to each other to – 
you know, I mean, they can they can talk to each other. They can't talk to free agents. So that's the day everything's going to really kick off and we'll have all the options, whether or not they've been uh, declined or picked up. You know, obviously, there's still decisions to be made with Marcus Stroman, Kyle Hendricks on those options that will be done by Monday. So I, we'll have some news. And so it's going to be an exciting time, I think, to be a Cubs fan. Agreed. Agreed. We're about a month out from the winter meetings, the first week of December out of Nashville, Tennessee. In the next couple of weeks, we got the qualifying offer deadline. We've got the non-tender deadline. And we'll get into that and more Cubs musings here again next time. Uh, that's all, though. Um, the Bears continue to stink. The Bulls stink. But we got Cubs baseball all offseason that we'll be talking about here on Behind the Yellow Line. We'll see you next week.